Psalm 95. Please do have your Bibles open at that passage. Of course, worship is a 24-7 activity. We worship at home. We worship at work. We worship in our leisure activities. But the emphasis here in Psalm 95, a bit like Psalm 92, is our worship as praise of our God within the people of God. In other words, what we normally do here when we meet together on a Sunday. Now, to God, this is a big thing. Uh, It is a crucial time for his people. It is the highlight of the week. It is the highlight of his day for the church. Is that how you feel about Sunday? Is that how you feel about the worship of God when we meet together, when we normally do? That it's crucial, that it's important, that it is the highlight? Or have we become pretty casual about it over time? If it happens, well, that's really good. If it doesn't happen, no big deal. Too bad. I mean, does it matter if I daydream during the singing? Does it matter that I doze during the sermon? Does it matter that I check the news headlines on my phone during times of prayer? Now, maybe we think, yeah, I know I probably shouldn't do such things. And when I do, I am being a wee bit naughty. But it's not a serious sin, is it? Well, what does God think about our worship services? What does he want to see? What does he want to hear in our worship services? What exactly am I supposed to do during an act of worship? Even right now, in this less than normal setting, what am I supposed to do? And can I ask you a few questions? Did you sing along with the words of the praise items this morning? Did you actually pray with our two prayers? Did you follow the reading of the scripture, Psalm 95, in your Bibles? Yes, I'm sorry, lots of questions. But perhaps now, when we can't be together as we normally are, maybe it's the right time for us to think about what we do as a church in our worship services. See, Psalm 95, and actually the psalm we'll look at next week, Psalm 96, are invaluable in leading us in our thinking about such things. Now, there are many ways we could break up the psalm, but I decided on two main headings. One, invitation, the invitation uh, to sing for joy. That's verse 1 to verse 7. And then warning about if we don't do that properly, verse 7b, right through to the end of the psalm. So first of all, the invitation verses 1 to 7. We see actually two clear invitations there using the word come. You'll notice that in verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And verse 7, or verse 6, sorry. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. But I think there's a third invitation there in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. It is more, I suppose, a command, but It's also an invitation. Maybe it's not as clear, but I think we've got three invitations here. Verse 1, an invitation or call to rejoice. Verse 6, an invitation or call to show reverence. And verse 8, an invitation or call to respond. 
And then three times we're actually given reasons why we should do these things. Verses 3 to 5, reasons why we should rejoice. And verse 7, reasons why we should be reverent. And verse 8 to 11, reasons why we should respond biblically and spiritually to the Word of God. Now, Tim Keller explains that the whole of our being is to be involved in true worship. And if the whole of our being is not involved, then it's not true worship. We are to worship with our emotions, as stated there in verse 1, as we sing for joy, or as we shout aloud, or as we extol him with music and with song. We are to worship him with our wills, as verse 6 points out, as we bow down, as we kneel before, and as we worship, as we prostrate ourselves before him. And we are to worship him with our reason, with our, with our thinking, as we listen and as we hear the word of God, as we do not harden our hearts, and as our hearts do not go astray. So in many ways, we're getting to the heart of worship in these verses of Psalm 95. And it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. We worship Jesus when we worship him with our emotions, our wills, and our thinking. This psalm, of course, is for us. It's not just a piece of ancient history for the people of Israel. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 quotes the psalm extensively and applies it to the New Testament church, and therefore it applies to us. And Derek Kidner in his commentary is right when thinking especially of verse 8 and 11 says this. He says that today of verse 7b is right now. The you is for all of us. And the rest of verse 11 is not actually Canaan, but salvation. So this psalm is for us in the church today. We can be a, a, a people of joyful praise to God with soft, pliable hearts. Or we can be a people of complaining hearts, worship. Soft hearts submit to his rule. Soft hearts follow the good shepherd that he actually is. But of course, hard hearts complain. Hard hearts rebel. Hard hearts go their own way. So today, we've got to make sure our hearts are soft and that our hearts truly worship the living and true God. Let's look at the text. Verse 1 and 2. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. We are to worship God and we are to worship God with exuberance. There's no... Room here for apathetic mumblings. This is worship fit for the Lord and fit for our Savior. There's a clear sense of exuberance, isn't there, in these verses? Now, of course, there are other ways to worship God. We can worship God in silence, and the Bible sometimes paints that picture. Sometimes we can worship God with tears, and yes, we also see that in Scripture. But the norm is that we worship God with joy and with enthusiasm. C.S. Lewis 
talks about having an appetite for God. And that's crucial for our understanding of worship. Because once we do have that appetite for God, our worship will be full of joy and enthusiasm. Exuberance is the word that some commentators use. It's a good word. It's not a common word, but it's a good word when it describes how we ought to worship and enjoy our God. So the word come there at the beginning of verse 95 is an invitation. Of course, Jesus used that word come many, many times. Uh, Particularly, we're to come to him for salvation. And then we're to come to him and worship him and enjoy him. Let us, notice, come let us. We're supposed to do that together in fellowship, in communion. Now, we cannot do that now here in the building as we normally have done for many, many years. But we can do it in families in our different homes, and someday soon, please God, we'll be able to do it together in this meeting house. So come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. I think that points to the the fact that we need to give all our energy to this. It's supposed to be full of noise and, and sound and passion with singing and shouting and music and words that worship him. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. It's all there, isn't it? Black and white. But we're not just left with the kind of invitation or the command. We're also given reasons why we should do that in verses 3 to 5. And you'll notice the key word there at the beginning of verse 3, for. So this is the rationale. Uh, These are the reasons. See, it's not just to be loud, pumped up noise, which it can easily be. It's supposed to be God-driven worship. And we're given two real reasons why we should sing for joy and shout aloud and extol him with music and song. The two reasons are that he's a great God and he's our God. You'll notice that he's a great God in verse 3 and later on he's our God, verse 7. First of all, think about the fact he's a great God. See how he's described there. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. But even before that in verse 1, notice how he's introduced to us. He, he is the Lord. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. He is Yahweh, the great I am. Notice also, we're supposed to shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. That's who he is, the rock of our salvation. Now, it's important because the context of uh, the psalm is the time when the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they were complaining about having no water. And God provides water through Moses from a, do you remember? From a rock. The people literally were saved by a rock or the water that came from the rock. And when we come to the the New Testament's understanding of that particular episode in the life of the people of Israel, Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 10, and he tells us that the rock actually is a picture of Jesus. Drink of him, drink of Jesus, and you will have living water. And then if you have living water, then you'll be able to worship him with joy and loud shouts and extolling him with music and song. But 
if you do not have Jesus as your Savior, if you have not drunk of him the living water, then you will be thirsty no matter what the world offers you or gives to you. You will be thirsty. He's a great God. That's the reason why we sing for joy and shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is the great God. He is the greatest. Who is like him? But he's also a great king. The second half of verse 3, for the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. He reigns supreme over kings and kingdoms. And so we rightly sing, he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is above all so-called gods. As verse 3b tells us, the idols of the world are nothing. The idols are no gods. Non-gods is really how we could translate those words. It's very interesting in this time of COVID-19 that the idols of the Western world have been shattered or at least damaged. They have proved to be worthless and useless in the face of a virus. Things like money and power and leisure and entertainment. Now, no doubt we will be able to recreate all our old idols when things return to normal again and make new ones as well. But the point is this. Yahweh is still God. The Lord is still on the throne. God is still the great king. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. So he's a great God. He's a great king. He's also a great creator, verses 4 and 5. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Literally, the whole world is in his hands. He made it by his hands, and he holds it in his hands. That means the oil is his. The fish of the oceans are his. The mountains are his. The universe is his. Everything is his. He's a great God. He's a great creator. He is worthy of great praise. You see what the psalmist is doing here? He's building up Reasons why we ought to sing for joy and shout aloud and extol him with music and song. He's a, a great God. But he's also our God, verses 6 and 7. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Verse 6 brings a, a beautiful sense of of reverence. And it also brings balance to the exuberance of verses 1 and 2. The word worship there in, in verse 6, come let us bow down in worship, basically means to prostrate ourselves. So, so what we have here are three verbs that mean that we, we come before him and we get down low before him. Notice the words, bow down, prostrate ourselves in worship, and kneel before Yes, we have to have exuberance and joy in our worship, but also reverence, also reverence. Yahweh, the Lord, is our maker, verse 6, and we've got to remember that, and we've got to worship him reverently.
come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So why? Why would we do that? Why would we bow down? Why would we worship? Why would we kneel before? Well, verse 7 tells us the reason why. Because he's our God. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. He's our God. He's our God of relationship. He's our shepherd. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? We are his flock, and we receive his pasture, and we enjoy his care. Verse 7, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Yeah. He deserves praise and worship from our hearts because he made it all, verses 4 and 5, and because he cares for us, verse 7. He's our maker and our carer. You know, reflect on that and worship him accordingly. So he's not a kind of a distant creator who made everything and then disappeared away up into the heavens. He's a close-by shepherd. And of course, Jesus used that image for himself, that he's the good shepherd. And we began our service with those words from John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We belong to him. He is our God. So how are we to worship him and thank him and praise him? Joyful, loud music and song, yes, but also subdued reflection, humble bowing and kneeling before him. That's the wonderful invitation to know and to be saved by and to worship and praise Yahweh, our Lord, our rock, our great God, our God and we can know through Jesus. As we hear that, I wonder, what is our reaction? Do we sort of shrug our shoulders and, and say, yeah, heard this all before, nothing new here, same old record, whatever. That's the temptation, isn't it? And God knows that. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and so he warns us between the... Um, the end of verse 7, right through to the end of verse 11. Gracious warning. Because God knows that it's easy for us to go through the rituals of religion, to come and to sing and to bow and to kneel, and yet our hearts can actually be hardened. Our hearts can go astray. Verse 8, verse 11. Do not harden your hearts, verse 8. Verse 11. They are a people whose hearts go astray. God knows that. And so he warns us graciously. Can I quote Tim Keller again? He says, Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. Ascribing ultimate value. So it's not just what we say or sing with our lips. It's what we do with our lives 
It's obedient living. It's faithful living. So we hear the Word of God, and Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. We listen to his voice. We hear what he says, and we live it out. And we do not harden our hearts, and our hearts do not go astray. So in verse 7b, right through to the end, verse 11, there's a shift in emphasis from let us sing for joy, let us shout aloud, let us bow down to hear his voice and do not harden your hearts. A stark change of direction, but he's speaking to us. And we need to respond with our entire being and ascribe to him ultimate value. We ascribe to him ultimate value. My sheep hear my voice, says Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we need to think about what it meant back in the original context and what it means for us today. The verses refer to the children of Israel's testing of the Lord in Exodus 17 at the waters of Meribah. And it refers also to Moses' own unfaithfulness at the waters of Massa in Numbers 20. And it basically involves grumbling, doubting, gurning about God's provision of water. And do you remember what happened as a result of that sin? As a result of the unbelief, as a result of the hardening of heart, neither that generation of the children of Israel nor Moses entered the promised land. Yeah, they witnessed the exodus They saw the mighty acts of God, the plagues that brought judgment upon Pharaoh and the Red Sea crossing, which brought judgment on the Egyptian army. They saw all of that, all the evidence, but within days of crossing the Red Sea, they hardened their hearts in unbelief and they grumbled against God. What a sad waste of spiritual blessing. What a sad waste of the revelation of, of the miraculous power of God. And despite lots of evidence of grace, they grumbled, they doubted, they hardened their hearts. And according to God, this sin is a serious sin. Now you might say, what has that got to do with us? Well, the Hebrews in the New Testament period were in danger of doing exactly the same. Those who were converted from Judaism, brought out of slavery to Judaism and sin in the world by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were in danger of doing exactly the same things. They were brought to faith in Jesus, but they began to doubt and to grumble and to harden their hearts. Some faced hardship, yes. Some faced persecution, yes. And some of them, defected back to Judaism. Like us, of course, they they wanted an easy life, a test-free faith. And so the warning in Hebrews 3 and 4 is also for us, those of us who profess to be Christians. It can so easily happen to us that we start to grumble and complain about God and we doubt His grace and power and we harden our hearts. And this anger's caught, as it always does. Verse 10, for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray and they do not know my ways. 
there is a grave danger for us from hard hearts. So listen to the gracious warning of God. Today, there's a sense of urgency. Today, the urgency is because you may not have a tomorrow. Do you know you're definitely going to have a tomorrow? There's no guarantees. Today is the day of salvation. Notice that in verse 7. Today, secondly, if you hear his voice. In other words, there's a sensitivity involved here. God has spoken through his word, through his son. So don't be deluded by the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Hear his voice today. Today, hear his voice. And do not harden your hearts. Because it really is a heart issue, isn't it? My prayer for you, my prayer for myself, my family, my church, is that we'll have soft hearts to hear him speak. And maybe we need our hearts saved, our souls saved. Maybe we need to be restored. Maybe we have grown into a time when we're simply hard of heart, astray in our heart. And we need the grace of God. Because to die with a hardened heart, verse 8, or a heart gone astray in verse 10, is serious. It results in verse 11. So I declare an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. If we die with a hardened heart, a heart that's astray, then there's no salvation, no heaven, no hope. The warning here, as James Montgomery Boyce tells us in his commentary, is for those who hear the gospel and who seem to have responded for a period of time, but who have a hard heart, who have gone astray in their heart. And the evidence is so very clear that there's no, no evidence of conversion, no fruit, just hardening of heart. And it gets harder as time goes by. They witnessed the power and grace of God. They heard the gospel. They understood the good news. But they're a bit like the parable of the sower. Do you remember the seed that was sown on the rocky soil and then seed was sown on the thorny soil? 50% of the seed sown produced nothing in the end. Looked good for a while. Looked healthy for a while. But all of that seed was wasted because their hearts were hard. And so the call is, the warning is, the gracious warning is, today, yes, today, now, hear his voice. He's speaking to us. Stop our doubting. Stop our hardening of hearts. Stop going astray in our hearts. And come and bow down and repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and our rest is heaven for us. Jesus hates sin because he knows the damage it does in our lives. Jesus hates ingratitude, the unbelieving part of our hearts. He laments when we waste the seed of the good news, the gospel. But Jesus also welcomes repentant sinners, repentant souls. So today, call on his name. Be saved or, or be renewed if that's your case. And then praise his name with exuberant worship. Come, let us sing 
for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song, exuberant praise and worship, but also reverent worship. Come, let us bow down and worship and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Come to Jesus and worship him properly. May God bless you. And we hope that during this week, in family devotions and in the going deeper devotions, this word will speak into your heart and into your lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful call to worship you properly. Thank you that you love repentant souls and sinners, people who come to you and who bow down and repent of their sin and seek forgiveness. Thank you for your love, for your grace, and for the opportunity to hear the gospel again today. Help us just to know your love, your power, your forgiveness, your renewal, your salvation, so that we indeed will be able to sing for joy and shout aloud and extol you with music and song. That we'll bow down in worship and kneel before you, the Lord, our maker. Thank you for this and for Jesus, and for his salvation. We pray in the name of the Lord. Amen.